Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today is James Rogers, manager of the Wine Cup Gamble Ranch in northeastern Nevada, uh, which is one of the largest ranches in the country. We met for the first time at the Society for Range Management's annual meeting in Denver this winter, where he gave a talk in a producer forum on some of the management philosophy that he has used at the Wine Cup. Uh, James, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Tip. I would say that people that are in my personal circle think that rangeland ecology is a pretty niche field. I happen to think it's a pretty large social group, uh, but but the number of people who are managers for a ranch of a million acres or more is a very small group. Uh, what made you pursue that? Maybe it found you. What was the history of you ending up on the wine kept gamble? Yeah, I mean, the, the story's long, so I won't go there. But, um, you know, I really did do think it found me in this way. I, I've had a long interest in, you know, grew up on a small family ranch, uh, loved livestock, showed cattle. I mean, cattle were my passion. And then, um, you know, even my schooling was around genetics and animal science. And, and yet I found myself in uh, the real estate business, which is odd in Subla County, Wyoming, and met a lot of great people, learned how to really run a business, learned how to lead people, interact with people. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I get a phone call one day of uh, an opportunity um, to come out here and look at the wine cup and and basically rebuild it and rebrand it. And um, it was, I don't know, it was a, a great opportunity that I jumped at. And um, yeah, I've never looked back. So. Yeah, I have to ask, where does the name came from? It's a really cool name. Uh, the Wine Cup? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, of course, the, the ranch has a long history, um, you know, dating back into the, you know, 1868 when, you know, some of the first cattle came through this country. And anyway, the ranch at that point was around a mil- uh, 3 million acres. And one of the homesteads to the north end over on Goose Creek uh, where the Goose Creek and the Little Goose Creek uh, confluence happen. If you look at it from an aerial f- photograph, it looks like a wine glass, the top of it being Big Goose Creek. And where Little Goose Creek comes into, it's kind of the stem of the wine glass. And and somebody at that point uh, overlooking that meadow saw that and decided that that would be a great brand. And so it's so, I mean, that hmm. brand, that confluence obviously still exists and I'm sure it's altered some, but um, that's where the brand came from. And as that, that ranch, you know, uh, um, the ranch got broke up from those original 3 million acres to what's just the, the million acres now, they retained that that brand for the, the wine cup. So even though that particular place isn't on the wine cup now, it originated, you know, you know, as its original uh, larger entity. So it is a huh. cool brand. It's a very cool brand with a great history. Yeah. And the Gamble was a separate ranch? That got put together later? Well, so it was a part of the larger uh, operation as well. So Utah Construction would have been the one that aggregated a lot of these ranches together at one point to, to, to make up the 3 million acres. But the gamble is uh, the name actually comes from a, a, 
last name of a family, the Gamble family that had homesteaded that place. Like so many ranches, you know, the Eccles Ranch that's on the, you know, that's one of the outposts is from the Eccles family. So there's always, you know, some name behind these little outposts, but now it's just the Gamble Ranch and the Wine Cup Ranch, you know, collectively about a million acres now. So, And that's not all private acreage. It's kind of a, it's a pretty even checkerboard of BLM ownership and private. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. It is, it is a pretty unique land ownership. Back in the day when the you know, the homesteaders would have come along if they could control the water, you know, they could control all of the rangeland around it. And so, you know, they would have made homesteads around the water sources, but then we're also um, a product of the railroad uh, land grant stuff that came through. So every other section, uh, 20 miles north and 20 miles south of the railroad would have been given to the railroad. And those are now private parcels checkerboarded throughout the southern portion of the ranch itself. So it's a really, uh, you know, I don't, it, it's, it's messy a little bit, but you can see how it, how it kind of developed over those years. And it had, you know, different reasoning for the, the makeup of that ownership. Yeah, that's a, the history of that is interesting. And it, it produces what I feel like is an, a really odd ownership pattern that seems to have more problems than benefits, you know, more risks than opportunities, but maybe that's not quite the case. Um, I feel like there's so many things to talk about. I'm not even sure where to start, but since, since we've never really talked on the podcast, I don't think about some of these large corporate ranches. I, I think uh, let's start with some of that. You know, when I, when, when regular folk, think of corporate ranches, they're probably thinking of, uh, you know, Ted Turner's holdings and probably have an image in their mind of something like a, you know, a, a dude ranch or a guest ranch where the livestock are more of an ornament rather than an economic driver. Uh, I got to visit the wine cup gamble back in June and I definitely got the impression that, that the wine cup is not that, uh, that, you guys manage the ranch to support itself. Is that common or are you an outlier in the world of corporate ranches? You know, and I have, you know, I'm not, uh, I can't speak on behalf of, uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the whole industry of corporate ranches, but I, I do think that there's, there are a few uh, larger uh, corporate owned uh, entities that are very um, relying upon the ranches, making a living for the ranch itself and, and supporting themselves. Um, we are one of those ranches. I can think of a few others that are like that. And, uh, and it's one of the real reasons I was drawn to this place. It wasn't, I wasn't drawn here even because of its size. I was drawn here because of the real interest that at, at this kind of a scale that the owner at the time wanted to, um, you know, make it support itself, make it pay its way and, uh, and within production agriculture, right? So we've got a lot of diversity uh, within that to give us some resilience. But I mean, it's, it is kind of unique because there's a lot of these show places. This isn't necessarily a show place, even though we try to keep it neat and tidy. It, mm -hmm. it really is a production uh, oriented ranch. So, yeah, I can think of several major benefits of, of, you know, this style of large corporate ranch, not the least of which is keeping big chunks of land intact, you know, under a single ownership and single management. Um, what do you see as some of the benefits of a, of a corporate ranch? 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've had the great pleasure of you know being on this place for over eleven years now, and I I mean, it seems like every year you kind of uncover another one of these big benefits, and that and that big land ownership and having it, you know, we really do manage an entire watershed, you know. So you have one, you know, let's just call it one personality uh, from a private land ownership that actually manages a watershed. So there's a tremendous amount of value that can come from that, from a learning process, you know. Um, I also, I think I've experienced the sense of this larger ranch being a part of a bigger community. So um, in a, we're, we're a part of a stewardship group with a lot of other smaller family ranches. And, and I think we can support some of the things, you know, blaze some trails that maybe that family ranch is a little bit more vulnerable to. So I think with that right mindset where these family ranches really um, can embrace these larger corporate ranches as, as kind of a, a valuable member where that bigger corporate ranch can take on some of those risks um, and have some of that scale to overcome, you know, some of the costs um, that are associated with exploratory, you know, new measures, you know, kind of thinking outside of the box a little bit to test the waters in, a, in an area with some management philosophy or something. I mean, uh, I think there's this, mm-hmm. we've had this philanthropic idea of that. Like it's a way for us to give back to the community because we can take on some of those other projects. And how do you guys get along with your neighbors? If you can answer, how does the local community feel about the wine cup gamble? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to speak for them. I mean, I, I think I have a very, uh, you know, I, I came from a family ranch. My family still owns a ranch. And so here I am kind of living this, in this bigger ranch with that family mentality. I mean, some of the biggest inspiration I get is being associated with, you know, the Boyce family or the Smith family or the, you know, the um, Domingo and, and uh, Ruby Uhart, you know, some of those people that have Mm -hmm. actually shown me, you know, this uh, sense of community that I didn't necessarily experience growing up. Mm -hmm. um, That I've experienced now and they've embraced us and kind of, and, and I think we've embraced them and it's been mutually beneficial. So I, I hope we're highly regarded in our community, in our neighborhood. I mean, I certainly have a lot of respect for the people that I get to work with in that larger stewardship group. So, Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to that. Uh, before we leave the topic of corporate ranches, what are some of the downsides of corporate ranches? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always the struggle, right? That sometimes you can get a little distant from the landscape itself. And so, um, you know, the larger the the ranch and some of the decisions that can be made further away from that ranch or some of the, you know, I mean, the other things that are going on can kind of be a, a distraction in some ways. I think that's always, I mean, that's like anything, right? I mean, any anytime we get to making decisions further away from that landscape, it can be a struggle. I mean, we see that in even in public land management. And I, I think that's a challenge that we constantly need to test ourselves on. Like how much autonomy are we giving to that, uh, to making some of those decisions that are affecting that land at that land space, you know? So I think that's a challenge I would say we're, we, we would have. Yeah. Uh, going back to one of the benefits I ran across, recently a a paper actually by Lynn Hunsinger and Peter Hopkinson from uh, 1996, which has been quite a while ago now. But they said to conserve some of the most productive and biodiverse rangeland landscapes, 
Ranching must not just be tolerated as a means to an environmental end, but valued and planned for ecologically, socially, and economically. Um, you feel like the wine cup gamble has, has been an example of, of doing that, of conserving things at the landscape scale? You know, I think we, we have, I, I think it's, it's, it was at risk for a while. Um, I mean, I think anytime, um, you know, the ranch was leased out for several years and I don't think there was as much ownership and really, you know, the, the results of what was going on on the landscape, nor maybe the social, social structure, maybe it was just driven singularly by the economics of it. And I think when you start to separate those things out, um, it, there's a lot of risk in that. And I think one, we've really focused on bringing all three legs of the stool, you know, back under, you know, our microscope or back under our lens, uh, that we look through every day. And I think that's been, you know, uh, something that we've modeled, something that I think is really important and powerful and, and hopefully, and we've learned a lot and we've grown a lot in that. And so I, hopefully that's something that we've done well at or better than in the past. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You said that one of the major advantages to socially healthy corporate ranches is that they can do a good job taking care of people, which reminds me of why I asked you to do the interview in the first place. You said in your talk at the uh, SRM producer form uh, that part of your management philosophy is to manage for heartbeats. Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, so I mean, this whole I've been working, you know, in this space for all this time with a lot of different stakeholders. Um, you know, when you're in public land space um, with a lot of other interested parties in that land space and the outcomes of that land space. You're, what I kept seeking for was what is this common denominator that we all can kind of gravitate toward? And, you know, you just, I get, I spend a lot of time on a motorcycle, you know, driving around the ranch, just trying to see it all and, and, you know, get inspired by the team of people that we've put together and, you know, associate with these stewardship groups and our neighbors and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service or the Nevada, Nevada Division of Wildlife. BLM, you know, all of these people. And it's like, what is the, the hunters that are out there? I mean, what mm -hmm. is this common denominator that we're all striving for? And I, I, I really come down to, it really is about heartbeats, you know, the diversity of heartbeats, the, the number of heartbeats, you know, that could be the singular thing that unites us, that we're all working to, um, you know, we're all striving for in some way. And so, kind of been on on mission with that uh that message for a while and actually getting some t-shirts made you know heartbeats of the range you know these mm -hmm. you know these cowboys that are out there working with their horse you know that has a heartbeat um you know the the staff that's out there uh monitoring that landscape you know and the, and the blm range specialists working in conjunction with uh with the the manager together monitoring data and the hunters that are out there with maybe their bird dogs and the elk and the, you know, the deer that are running across that landscape that all have a heartbeat, the beaver that we're, you know, trying to allow that population to flourish, you know, they have the heartbeat, even the coyote, you know, it has a heartbeat that's out there on that landscape that is, serves a valuable role. And, and certainly, you know, my, my vision is that all of the people, certainly the next generation of, of whether it is range specialists or next generation of, you know, 
ranchers that are out there, you know, that, that youthful heartbeat that we need to make sure is a part of this landscape and that we're nurturing. So. So you would say that if, uh, let me back up. I've said for years that rangelands based livestock grazing is one of the only sectors of agriculture where you really can have your cake and eat it too. And it, it sounds like you're saying if we do a good job taking care of all of the living things that are out there from hunters to wildlife to livestock to ranch staff to the public that recreates, uh, then then things are likely going to work out uh, economically and not just socially. Yeah, I mean, I really believe that. I believe it, it, it can be a win-win. And I, I am an optimist, but I've seen the progress that our neighbors have made through some of the collaborative work that they've done. And we've certainly stood on their shoulders to, to work toward that end where we've invited stakeholders uh, to be a part of our operation and to have a voice in our operation. And I, I believe we're better informed. We're better managers uh, on the land. And I think we're starting to see the ecological results and the financial results. But most importantly, I think we're seeing the social results of that. And so I really do think it's a, a win, win, win for, for all three legs of that stool. Mm-hmm. I had a forest, <clears throat> forestry professor in college who said that uh, high school students often go into natural resource fields to have a career where they can spend their time in the woods, on the range, you know, in the wild. Uh, but he said the real work is in influencing people to make decisions that are good for land and people. And, you know, kind of along those same lines, I, I think that, you know, range livestock production is a place where even political polarities can come together around common values because most ranchers value healthy, intact ecosystems with wildlife and open space and healthy soils. And I, I, my impression is that most true environmentalists, whatever that term means anymore, also want that. They just differ and you know and and also dicker over how we get there. Uh, and you're saying you've you've seen some of that uh, unity, I guess, in the diverse kinds of people that use the wine cup. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, I mean, this thing, this is what rings true to me, Tip. Is I really think we've we've overdone um, management, and we've neglected leadership. Hmm. And I think that's the thing that I mean. I think we've managed the heck out of things. We've managed the heck out of people. We've managed the heck out of land. We've managed the heck out of our finances. But I don't think we've always led things very well. And I, you know, I'm just reminded, you know, that, you know, the our leadership really is to, you know, it's to increase the standard of living and the quality of life for all the stakeholders and all that we're like, all that we're in care of. And I think if we'd focus on leadership before management, that we can make a whole lot more progress in that. So. Yeah. Speaking of progress, here's a, an abashed segue. You guys have been uh, kind of on the forefront of trying out the outcomes-based grazing idea with the BLM. Uh, how did that come about? How many how many BLM permits are on the whole place? The Wine Cup Gamble is what sixty miles east to west, and a little less than that north to south. It's a really big landscape and a lot of BLM. Uh, what what got you to the place where you're looking at 
doing an outcomes-based grazing pilot on your BLM permits. Yeah, it's a really interesting, um, you know, when I first got there back in 2010, you know, that we knew that there, the permits were, you know, going to need to be renewed fairly soon. Um, and so we actually started down that road of, of renewing the BLM allotments. There are, uh, there's actually four allotments on the ranch right now um, that encompass, you know, that million acres. Um, and what we decided to do is we needed to gather a bunch of monitoring data. And as we went down that road and through that process, you can, I mean, if you can kind of think of what's happened from 2010 to 2020, you know, sage grouse really came on the radar kind of midpoint in there. And now all of a sudden the policies and, and land use plans and stuff came about. And so it kind of disjointed our plan to get these permits renewed because we weren't sure where everything was going to settle out. And then lo and behold, we, 2018, there was this thought that came and it was this national pilot call for, from the BLM to said, you know, if there's people that want to work toward a more outcome-based grazing approach on their BLM allotment, we're taking applications for that. And this whole time, you know, we've, we've been like, that's, that's actually exactly how our, you know, our philosophy from even our private ground would be is more of a results-based um, uh, idea. And so we ended up applying for that, uh, that pilot and it really is, you know, results-based grazing or outcome-based grazing. And I think, you know, the general sense of it is, is to provide some sense of, or some level of flexibility to per, to permittees, um, to, to make more on the ground decisions with them having accountability, you know, to, to prove that those decisions are well thought out and have purpose and intention. And then I think at the, you know, at the end of the day, it's like um, we, we were really just striving for responsibility, people to take, to be able to respond to things, but also take responsibility for their actions. I see so many public land grazing permits that are always blaming everybody. They're like, they're blaming the permittee or they're blaming the public or they're blaming the BLM, or they're blaming the Forest Service. And it's really this, this ownership of the decisions that are made and not blaming somebody else. And so we've really kind of embraced that whole idea. Um, and, and then knowing also that there's not just ecological objectives in this permit, there's also social objectives and there's economic objectives. So really making sure that those things are tied into this BLM permit as well. So I don't know. And those that, are written into the permit. They are the social objectives. Yep. So we have we we have all. I mean, our ecological objectives are what I would say a little bit more robust. But um, we've we've been very uh, uh, specific about economic objectives and very specific about social objectives written right into the alternative that we've proposed to the BLM. So, yeah. What would be an example of a, a social objective? You know, well, for one, like conflict resolution, like no, no overarching conflict that we would be maintaining, you know, at any given point in time. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that could be a little bit vague, but I think there's a, there's a lot of times that there's conflicts that are kind of underlying the surface of so many of these relationships between the permit and the BLM. And one of our objectives would be to have you know, zero, zero conflicts. And we have ways, you know, our, our methodology to avoid those conflicts is, you know, our, you know, uh, having 
having certainly all of our stakeholders uh, present for our planning, uh, our grazing planning every year, having a getting out on the ground at least once a year, hopefully post COVID to be able to, you know, get our, all of these, uh, the BLM staff, the Fish and Wildlife Service staff, our ranch staff out on the ground together at least one time a year doing a field tour, looking at the good, bad, and the ugly, being very transparent about what's going on and some of the decisions that are being made. Um, so we really, I mean, and it's really building a trusting environment where we can have those honest conversations and being face-to-face in some of those conversations rather than just always having a conversation via phone or via email, right? So... Yeah, that can be tricky because it it doesn't just depend on you. Uh, you know, it takes two to fight, and so uh, that it, yeah, having that as a goal necessitates more of an ongoing um, you know relationship and partnership with the people you know from whom conflict might come. Right. Yep. Correct. And when you do have a, let's call it a bigger team of people that are out there on the landscape looking at things, you have a lot of perspectives, which, you know, truthfully, it can be strifeful sometimes to have all these perspectives. But one thing we know is that, you know, every stone's going to be unturned. We're not going to miss anything. But then also, if a person transitions out of that team, there's still a bigger team, right? It isn't just a range con that just now left and you've lost 50% of your information, uh, your institutional knowledge or anything, you actually have a bigger team that's there. So when that new person comes in, they have that support, they have that perspective. And so, you know, and, and that's been modeled by, you know, for us, it's been modeled by the shoe soul group, which is a, a smaller stewardship group. Um, that's just our neighbors to the North of us. I mean, I saw that modeled back in 2000. And 11, when I was invited on one of their their tours, and it was an unbelievably enlightening moment for me to say, this is how we need to manage this landscape. We need to have all the stakeholders here. It's not just the permittee and, and just the BLM, even though the ultimate authority and the decision making happens by the BLM, those other perspectives are extremely valuable. And I think um, it's it's helpful for the BLM when they have the support of these agencies and these other perspectives. And it's also helpful for the permittee when they have those other perspectives. You know, it just seems like it's it's more well thought out. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes collaboration or, you know, stakeholder collaboration is assumed to mean all the people that have an interest and interest sounds pretty positive, but um, one of the most effective things may be inviting people that could be uh, enemies, like somebody who might sue you to that table. Uh, is that something that you've dealt with much or is that not too much of a problem there? Yeah. So I think um, what I would say is, is so s- certainly the uh, collaborative group is is by invitation. and I And what we've established is there's some core values to be invited to be a part of that, that you have to believe in. And, you know, I would say, you know, one of those core values is that livestock can be used as a tool to maintain and improve ecological conditions. If, if you don't believe in that core value, you're probably not going to do well in that group. You know, mm-hmm. another one is, you know, that good land management 
you know, would include both art and science, you know, where art is informed by good science or the, the most current science that's available, but, but there is an art form to it. Um, you know, and then another one is that all, you know, the multiple heartbeats that are on that landscape, they're all valued and they should all have a voice. Right. And so Mm -hmm. if you can believe in those three core values, then you're absolutely invited to participate in our, and I would say you're, you're solution minded and not just conflict minded. Right. So if you believe in those core values, you're, you're absolutely at any point invited to participate in this collaborative group and collaborative process. If it, yeah. any of those things don't align with your values, then you're probably you're, it'd probably be a destructive uh, relationship. So, yeah, yeah. Somebody has said that leadership is, in some cases, making your idea other people's ideas, and I'm aware that some of these concepts that you're talking about may not necessarily be um, at the forefront of most of the people that typically run a ranch, ranch staff, cowboys, uh, that part of Nevada is known for um, for a particular style of cowboy. And being touchy-feely and, and collaborative maybe isn't on the top of their list. How have you gone about trying to make some of, the, some of these ideas uh, be owned by the people that you depend on you know, to make things happen on the ranch? No, it's a good question. I mean, I think all of us, this is kind of this rugged Western uh, personalities, like surviving and being outdoors and all of that, like the touchy feely thing isn't all that attractive. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit of a touchy feely person. Uh, so it's was not so hard for me when I saw it modeled. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I saw the value in it and it's something that I could relate to. But you're right. When I when I come home from one of those very first meetings that were pretty enlightening to me, and I'm like, so how am I going to get all of these uh, buckaroos to sit around in a circle and start talking about their feelings and start planning together is a very intimidating uh, thought and idea. And I think what I really tried to do, I think in the beginning was, you know, kind of really neutralize my position, you know, not as this. Uh, this is this is how we're going to do it, but it was more of a discovery. Let's just see where this goes, and let's just start talking about things that were maybe not threatening, you know, like the things that weren't the hot button yeah. for the time. And so, you know, Mike Lunn. I don't know if people know Mike Lunn, but Mike and and Laura Van Riper were instrumental in me. I can I could go back on my computer and find. Uh, you know, in 2011, just pages and pages of emails from Mike, Mike Lund kind of coaching me from the side and certainly was one of my mentors in collaboration. And because I was I was challenged by that. I mean, I hadn't been around a lot of collaboration. I, um, and so, you know, the first meetings were a little awkward. We'd roll out chairs and put them around inside the shop and you know, we locked the door so that the UPS man wouldn't come walking in and, and see us all sitting in a circle and, and <laughs> think we were in some AA meeting or something. But I got to tell you, um, you know, you start to build a culture around that. And and I I think, you know, the people start to feel safe and you build a, tr- a tr- you know, some build some trust with people. Um, it really is a pretty beautiful thing. And I, I think... Um, 
one thing I've learned at the wine cup, I always think about these reflecting back, like what are some of the things I've learned at the wine cup? And, and one, one thing that always sticks in my mind is that it's okay to change, right? Because I've seen um, some of some people that were, you know, staff at the ranch that I thought, man, these guys are hardcore. I don't know if I'd ever see this guy weep. I don't know if I'd ever see this guy care about somebody else. Yeah. Like, I I've seen people change through this process that, uh, you know, they, they'd fall on a sword for some people I never would have imagined. And, mm-hmm. um, it's pretty special to be a part of that. And that's why I think, you know, the social aspect of land management, um, it's, it's pretty critical. Agreed. I think some people would be interested in the unique logistics of a really big ranch. I think I'm right that, as I said before, you're about 60 miles east to west and a little bit less north to south. Um, how many how many herds do you guys run? How do you have your ranch staff organized? And do you think there's things that are um, thought to be unique to a big ranch that are actually applicable at a smaller scale? Yeah, I mean, so... Um, I mean, I want to answer this thoughtfully because sometimes I take things for granted with just the the scale. Um, mm-hmm. We we certainly have reduced the number of herds. I mean, I think that that's valuable with any operation. So, um, just going when when I first arrived, uh, you know, the ranch had you know eight hundred cows here and eight hundred head cows, three hundred head cows here, five hundred head cows here. I mean, we've mm-hmm. we've we've central centralize those cows and move them more often. And certainly that takes more effort on our crew in the movement of cattle, but it takes less effort in their ability to go check on cattle or check on water or check or have all the fences up and ready. I mean, it it really focuses people's attention to a certain herd at a certain place at a certain time. And so I think we've created a lot of efficiencies that way. Um, the, the, the ranch is really broke up into two, two different operations, even though they're one ranch, we do try to, um, you know, kind of have somewhat of a separation so that there, you know, some logistics, people can team up and work together. Um, so there's a, there is a wine cup cow herd. Uh, there's actually two cow herds there, but one main overarching cow boss that's in charge of that and, and a maintenance, uh, a, a maintenance guy that's there that runs the water wells you know, mechanics, stuff like that. And then the gamble has a separate cow boss that's over one. They just have one big herd on the ga- the gamble side of the ranch. Um, and then they have, of course, their support staff. And then we also have a farm uh, boss that's there on that side of the ranch that takes care of all of the irrigation. And then we actually have a, a grass finishing operation with a stalker operation that happens on our irrigated ground. And so I have an overarching manager um, for that. And then, um, so that's kind of the structure. And I think the the challenges with, with that operation in particular is that we're so spread out. Um, what we try to do is, you know, communication is the thing that is the barrier for everybody. I think whether you're on a small operation or a big operation, it seems amplified on a big operation when you're 50 miles apart from each other. But, uh, I think we've tried to be really diligent about, um, being more intentional about getting together um, more often to communicate, to plan, to kind of head off things, to to grow, to inspire and encourage each other. And so we end up 
uh, you, you know, we'd have like our supervisor meetings, what I would call like our, my big core supervisors, the cow bosses, the farm bosses, the mechanic, you know, those guys were certainly meeting collectively as a whole ranch unit, um, you know, once a month. And then they meet with their individual staff. Certainly, you know, they're meeting daily in some regards, but the cow boss and the mechanic are meeting weekly, you know, to be really much more diligent about planning and the things that are kind of, you know, the, the logistical things that are happening every day. And then we bring in our entire staff, uh, all of the, you know, the supporting staff, the other cowboys, the irrigators, some of those other people, we bring those in quarterly and have quarterly uh, meetings, you know, whether those are safety meetings or financial meeting, planning meetings, or sometimes they're just fun meetings, right? We just get together and have a barbecue or something. Mm-hmm. But I think getting together is probably a challenge that we have, but I, I really believe that's a challenge that every operation has is, is, uh, um, is just communicating and kind of having some systems in place. So. Yeah. I wanted to zoom back out and talk for just a minute about ranching challenges at a, a broader level. Uh, what do you see as some of the limiting factors to keeping commercial ranches together and not being, you know, split up, silver development, uh, et cetera. Well, I mean, I think financial, financially, I mean, that's always going to be the, you know, the challenge. I mean, if these ranches aren't, you know, annually profitable, and I think that is a really hard thing. I think ranch production agriculture, you know, is maybe a, a zero sum business, you know, some years are good and some years are bad. And I think that's a real challenge and an obstacle. You get too many of those negative years in a row and that those can often come with, you know, drought or, you know, something that's going on fire um, that can happen. So I think, you know, that's always going to be a challenge. So when that opportunity comes to, to, for a, for a higher use or more, more, more value or something, um, you know, that's certainly a challenge. And then I, I would say, uh, generations, right? Like we need a younger generation. And, and I, I think one, uh, and I would say diversity, I mean, not every, every family kid is going to want to be a cowboy when they come back to the ranch. And yet I think there, if we get creative, um, there's opportunities on these ranches to invite and bring back about anybody with any kind of interest. And I think the wine cup gamble opened that opened my eyes to that. Like sometimes our own imagination is our limitation for attracting back this younger generation. And I think there's some real, some smaller operations that have really modeled that. And we kind of scaled that up on the wine cup a little bit. I mean, we have a goat herd and a grass finishing operation in the great basin. And that's like a lot of times that blows people's mind, but I can tell you like the value that those people that have that interest and the reason we brought those enterprises on, there's so much more value that they bring to the bigger operation because of their mindset like, I don't think we would be as good of a cattle cow calf operation if we didn't have the goat herd, or I don't think we'd be as good of a, you know, hay operation if we didn't have the grass fed division. Like it's just having that diversity is so valuable on these ranches. And I think we've, we've kind of centralized ourselves so much that we were, we actually have lost some of our imagination. We kind of get stuck in this rut. And so anyway, mm-hmm. hopefully that wasn't too much of a rabbit trail. 
No, usually the most useful information is on the rabbit trail, which also makes me think, uh, what do you think about putting ranches in a land trust? At least in, you know, I'm in central Washington. We're, you know, within a few hours drive of Seattle and Spokane and some other, you know, pretty um, highly populated urban centers. And because of that, land values are pretty high. And that's the case, you know, in quite a few areas around the West, Colorado, uh, California, land values are high. And, you know, if, 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 if a guy is going out of business or doesn't have an heir, no one wants to take over the ranch and they sell the ranch. Um, you know, most young ranchers are not able to buy those kinds of properties for, you know, for what they can make on them to pay back the loan on that real estate. And there's been, you know, these land trust conservation easements are one of the things that really divide uh, the ranching community, at least in in the Pacific Northwest, uh, i.e. people tend to be either for them or against them and not a whole lot of middle ground. Uh, I don't know how much uh, <clears throat> how much of that is common on large corporate ranches, but I'm curious uh, what your impressions are about putting ranches in a land trust in order to, you know, maintain that open space and keep it together. Yeah. Put me in the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I certainly have an opinion and I mean, I think land trusts and conservation easements are a tool, right? I don't think they're the only tool that we have available to us. And I think, I mean, I, my, my family's wrestled with it. My parents, you know, have had the thought and the idea of a, of a conservation easement on their particular ranch, because I know my dad's core, one of his core values is he wants to see that ranch in open space and productive forever. Right. And, and yet I, you know, I think when we can open our eyes to what are the other possibilities of this? I mean, it, you're kind of, you're kind of getting at the core of kind of what I've really seen in, in, in my values, the older I get, I want to help family ranches stay in business. And I think, you know, certainly a, a land, a, a conservation easement is a tool, but I think being able to find diversity and find a way that people see uh, real hope in the future, right? I think sometimes land trusts or, or conservation easements um, seem like the only hope to maintain that open space for that person to, to, um, you know, in perpetuity, because maybe there's not hope with their own, their own kid coming back to the ranch or, or something. And yet if, you know, maybe it isn't always their kid that comes back to the ranch. Maybe it's another kid that wants an opportunity. When, when we were at SRM in Denver, I saw more young people at SRM than I've ever seen. And that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I had people coming up after, you know, some of the conferences or the the breakout sessions and, you know, just talking about like hungry for an opportunity to get out on a ranch and actually do something, learn something other than just um, about cowboying. Right. And I, so I think there's, I don't know, I would say, you know, let's explore some of these other possibilities besides just land trusts and just conservation easements. Let's figure out if there's a way that we can, we can create mechanisms for other family ranches or for family ranches to invite people outside of their family to carry on that tradition and to keep that open space and keep them viable. And these kind of mentor relationships. I mean, I think there's, 
there's possibility there. I like it. And I think that's a, a good conclusion. Uh, James, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? No, I mean, I think uh, I would, I think this has just been, the, you know, working on the wine cup gamble ranch has been an incredible opportunity for, for me to grow and, and to learn a lot and to become acquainted. And I, I think there was a day that I was just about the cows. Right. And I think, you know, my trajectory in life has just broadened that um, so much. And, and I think inviting somebody that's went off into the business world back to the family ranches or back to a, a, a ranch is could be really a valuable thing. And we need to just keep that in mind because I probably brought more from my corp, my, my business world back to a ranching operation than I ever would have thought possible. And so I think it's, um, it's been good to get back to my roots. It's been good to kind of, um, you know, work with an amazing team. I mean, I have to give pretty much all the credit to, to our team of people at the ranch to, to have changed it from what it was 11 years ago. I mean, we've got an amazing staff and, and I'm so proud of them and what we've been able to accomplish here at the ranch. And, and it really is that, that team approach that I strive for and, and I've just been honored to be a part of. So, and I, I thank you for participating today on this call. Yeah. And I want to thank you for what you do. I think I've mentioned before, there's an old Alabama song that talks about people that keep this country turning around. Uh, I had a policy professor, I believe it was Kendall Johnson, uh, who said uh, people won't value food producers until they're not sure where their next plate of beans is going to come from. And um, I think maybe that tide is beginning to turn where people are valuing food producers. And I, I think in particular, in rangelands-based livestock production, we have a really good story to tell. And I appreciate uh, what you've done to to create a uh, a more positive image of the Western rancher. Yeah, well, it's it's my pleasure. It's a, it's a great work. We all have our part to do. So I hope everybody keeps carrying on and you keep doing your good work and sharing these stories. I love listening to your podcast and I'm certainly a student of yours. And so look forward to the future and all the other people that'll be a part of this conversation. So thank you, Tip. Great. James Rogers, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.